Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is our news roundup for the week uh, in which we tackle a handful of big news stories uh, that have been happening in the consumer tech industry during the course of the week. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, so it's always possible there'll be big news on Thursday evening or Friday morning, which we will miss. Um, but we're going to discuss four items from earlier in the week, two of which are actually from today. Uh, the first one, this happened uh, early in the week, Microsoft announced an initiative to try to connect more of the rural United States with broadband services using uh, wireless technology in what are called the white spaces within the bands of spectrum licensed to TV broadcasters. Uh, the second one, we discussed Amazon's Prime Day. This is their third edition of their uh, holiday, quote unquote, uh, in which they discount lots of deals for uh, Prime members. Thirdly, and this is the first of the two items from today, uh, Uber has basically thrown in the towel on its own operations in Russia and m is going to be merging its operations with uh, Yandex, which is the sort of Google of Russia and the leader in the uh, Russian ride-sharing market. So similar to the deal that they did a year ago with DD in China. And then fourth, a report from Mark Gurman at Bloomberg that Facebook is developing its own uh, standalone VR headset for Oculus. Uh, so this would be a headset that doesn't require a phone or a PC or a console or anything like that. It would be standalone, similar to uh, what Google announced in May at its I.O. developer conference. Uh, and so those are the four items that we'll talk about. We'll kick off with the Microsoft one. And uh, this interesting news from Microsoft, obviously Microsoft not a broadband company itself. And importantly, as part of this announcement, it's not planning to become one either. Uh, really, this is a sort of a philanthropic effort from Microsoft to fund... Uh, the building of networks by traditional telecoms operators in various places throughout the United States to reach uh, rural uh, communities and users with broadband services. Uh, some of the statistics that Microsoft cited around this was that there are 23.4 million uh, homes in the United States in rural areas that can't get broadband. Uh, and it wants to basically try to solve about a tenth of that problem or 2 million uh, by itself. It's pitched the total cost of connecting those using the technology that it's chosen at about 10 to $15 billion. So that's for the 23.4 million. So Microsoft's total investment here will be a fraction of that, perhaps a billion, perhaps less than that. But the idea is it's not doing this to make money. It's simply going to invest the capital to build these networks and then uh, work with local telcos to actually run them. And then any uh, revenue share that it gets from it will be reinvested into similar projects. And so its intention is to... Uh, launch uh, a whole set of projects in several states over the next couple of years. Uh, the technology is wireless technology. It's going to be using white spaces spectrum, and that is the uh, gaps in the spectrum that's uh, licensed to TV broadcasters. So there's a, a band of spectrum or several bands of spectrum in the United States that are licensed for TV signals. But in reality, in every local market, there are gaps between the uh, little chunks of that that are actually being used at any given point in time. And so there are spaces in which... Uh, broadband and other signals can be provided. And so that's Microsoft's plan here. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's a worthy goal, clearly. I mean, it's the cynical part of me is, uh, you know, and this is based on some of the comments that Microsoft leaders have made over the last few days about this. They've just discovered rural America. They've just discovered broadband all of a sudden <laughs> now. Um, they've been quite frank about the fact that all their projects in this area until now, and they have had some which have not been that high profile, have been in Africa and other parts of the world. Uh, they're coming back and doing this in the US, and it does seem to have been prompted by their admission, at least in part by uh, the presidential election last year and the sense that rural America was being left behind. There is obviously a, a less altruistic angle here, which is potential new customers for Microsoft's 
software, most of which is now delivered software as a service and therefore requires an internet connection. But uh, anyway, interesting effort from Microsoft. Aaron, your take on all of this? Well, I, I share the same um, high regard for the goal. I think it's great. It's, you know, the truth is the, the U.S. is way behind other developed countries when it comes to Internet speeds generally, but also Internet penetration. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that as a developed nation, the U.S. is big and pretty spread out. We don't have the same population density that other developed countries have. Um, but that said, it, it doesn't make it not a problem here in the U.S., um, and it's easy to forget how, how, how much it can influence a person's connection with the world, their access to education or information to have a reliable, constant broadband connection. Um, I, I, I love when I see companies do this sort of thing generally in, you know, in the academic space, um, in corporate social responsibility. Um, there's a really kind of terrible practice. I call it uh, checkbook CSR. And it's this idea that companies don't really view their corporate social responsibility as being anything more than writing big checks and then mm -hmm. having a CEO do a photo op. Right. And the problem, I mean, there, there's, there are good things about corporate philanthropy, but the, but the generally bad thing is that often that money isn't, isn't delivered strategically by any means. In fact, it's sometimes just because the CEO has a friend who runs a charity and that's how that those decisions often get made. Mm -hmm. This is this is a totally different flavor in that it's much more aligned with Microsoft's core competencies. And the idea is that Microsoft is good at things like this area, for example, and that they can take what they're good at and contribute in that way, rather than just writing a check, you know, that's gonna go to to some nonprofit, whichever one it turned out to be. This is more direct engagement and bringing expertise and wisdom rather than just uh, you know a check and they don't really care how it ends up getting spent in the end because they get the PR benefit from it. Right, yeah, no, you know, I, that's a really good point. And, it, and it's good to, it, you know, I'm, I'm not, I guess, as um, a, a lot of people see this, I think, very cynically, right? And they think this is just about Microsoft making money. Um, the way I see it is, okay, why not both? <laughs> Right. I mean, why not let it be something that Microsoft does to improve the world? And, hey, it also gives them better access to customers. It gives them, you know, a, a, a marketing edge um, or a marketing bump, I guess, is a better way to describe it. But the, but the point is, is it can be both. And that's great. In fact, I wish more companies were thinking that way about this space, that they were thinking um, sort of more strategically about the ways that they can have a social impact. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. Um, there's a lot more detail here, and, and you know, for the sake of not boring you all with the technical details, we didn't go into it here, but there's lots of information on Microsoft's website about how they're doing this. Um, there are some aspects of this that require action from the FCC to clarify some of the rules about that white spaces spectrum and make more of it uh, available in more places. Uh, and as I said, Microsoft's only planning to tackle about a tenth of this problem itself and is calling on other government agencies and other companies and so on to solve the rest of the problem. So I'm skeptical that it'll really achieve all of its goals here. I think just achieving the two million coverage that it wants to achieve itself is going to be tough enough. But again, as we've both been saying, I think kudos to them for at least trying uh, and for doing so here at home, you know, where there are... Uh, where there's a big digital divide and, and where, you know, people in rural communities have big disadvantages because of the lack of access to broadband. So it's a good thing. Well, let's move on to our second story, and that's Prime Day. This is Amazon's now annual holiday. It takes place in roughly mid-July, last three years now, um, in which it discounts uh, a lot of items on its site 
uh, for Prime members exclusively. So you have to be a member of the Prime service to get access to these deals. Of course, you can sign up as a brand new subscriber and for their free trial in order to take advantage of the deals if you haven't done so before. And, uh, and they do now have a monthly subscription. So assuming you can find ways to save more than $11, uh, you know, you could sign up just for the month. Um, but they put out their usual press release the day after, uh, which is classic Amazon, sort of lots of relative numbers, so 60% growth uh, over last year's Prime Day. Um, but uh, the actual numbers are all things that you don't really care about, like the number of toys they sold or things like that. So there's not a lot of detail in there about the revenue and the sort of financial impact of this. A uh, number of financial analysts have had a go at estimating previous Prime Days and so on. Uh, those estimates vary pretty widely. Um, but it seems likely that they were somewhere a little under a billion dollars this year. I think there's possibility it was higher than that based on some of Amazon's own statements and kind of adding those up over the years. But at any rate, a big day for them, several times their normal average day of sales in the middle of July. Um, but, uh, you know, little actual financial detail out there. Um, some other points worth noting, the top seller overall this year was the Echo Dot, which was uh, heavily discounted. It was down to $35 from 50 uh, the last two years, it had been the Fire TV stick. And in general, Fire TV devices seem to show up a lot less in the press release this year, suggesting that they may be selling less well than they have in the past. Um, this is the biggest day for Amazon ever. So bigger than Black Friday and Cyber Monday last year, for example. Um, bigger than last year's, as I say, by 60%. Lots of other details about you know top-selling devices and how many thousands of TVs they sold and that kind of thing. But um, Aaron, what was your take on Prime Day and, and this sort of phenomenon that we've seen now three times? Yeah, so just two thoughts. One just quick one. Um, the Wirecutter, which is a great product review website, has um, they they pay pretty close attention to this. I think they said they said through Twitter they ended up scanning something like seventeen thousand deals, and only half a percent of them were deals that they actually recommended. <laughs> it, right. And and what it took to be a recommendation was obviously the discount had to be good and. It had to be a product they recommended. So clearly there were a lot of good deals beyond just what the Wirecutter recommended. But I think it shows that that there is a fair amount of froth in Prime Day. And I think everybody has experienced that firsthand um, where it's not it, it's not like these are really deep, solid, amazing deals. Um, but yet, and this gets to the second point, it has such an incredible cultural power now, more than I think I ever expected it. You know, the first year it was like, oh, here's this weird thing that Amazon is doing and and then the second year it was it was uh, oh my gosh they're doing this again and now the third year it sort of felt like on Twitter anyway that this was a federally recognized holiday <laughs> <laughs> I mean it was really that prominent like like I think people talk more about Prime Day than they did Flag Day right yeah. or yeah. any any other of the more obscure federal holidays mm -hmm. and so um, that part was what was most interesting to me. I, I didn't end up getting anything because I was busy in a conference uh, for almost all of Prime Day. But, but uh, um, you know, it just it sort of has this hold now, and uh, mm. and you know, to the point that people are making jokes about the hold that it has, which tells you it's really there. It, right. it, I mean, they'll obviously keep doing it, and. Yes. Uh, and as they keep doing it, it'll be interesting to see how it morphs, but also how it sort of takes really solid root. I, I, you know, prime accounts themselves, we talked about these um, just recently, uh, you know, have pretty deep penetration, if not quite as deep as, as uh, others have predicted. But um, stuff like this is just brilliance. I mean, from a marketing yeah. perspective. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting because, as I said, it's clearly several times the normal order volume they see in a single day in mid-July. But, of course, a lot of that is stuff that's pulled forward from later. Um, you know, and even then, you know, a, a one big day in the course of a 90-day quarter is not going to move the needle enormously on overall financial results. And right. clearly with all the discounting, you know, the margins will be lower on a lot of this stuff too. So it, the direct impact is is fairly limited. But as you say, the sort of broader impact of driving prime subscriptions and so on, um, you know, that's fairly significant. And I've, I'm running a survey right now about um, Amazon Prime subscribers and trying to sort of determine how many people signed up in the last couple of weeks. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's a fairly small percentage, but I, I'm getting results that are sort of anywhere from 5 to 10% of the total base signed up in July. Um, you know, the total base of Prime subscribers in the US. So you know, it clearly does drive some new Prime subscriptions, and some of those may be temporary, especially with the monthly option available now. Um, but, you know, it, it's that's the single biggest thing is driving prime subscriptions, which in turn are the single biggest driver and part of Amazon's famous flywheel that kind of drives their business through this sort of loyalty and then buying more and more stuff and all the rest of it. So I think it's notable for that as much as anything else. Um, yeah. Just drilling into the numbers a little bit, it's worth noting that, you know, that 60% growth, a um, couple of caveats on that. There are three new countries this time around. So China, India and Mexico weren't prime countries last time around. This event ran for 30 hours instead of 24 hours for the last two years, so it was a longer event this time around. That doesn't guarantee you spend you know 25% more money because it's 25% longer, but clearly has an impact that these things are running you know earlier and later than they were uh, in previous years and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, huge huge day for them, as you say. The sort of cultural significance is is growing each year as well. The first two years, they explicitly said in the press release, we think we're going to do this again. I think they didn't say that this year. It's kind of a given at this point that it's become an annual event. Yeah. Um, but a, you know, a great way for them to boost sales, but more importantly, I think to drive more Prime subscriptions as well. A thousand years from now, people are going to be celebrating Prime Day, <laughs> and Amazon, the company, may be long dead, and there will be this mythology <laughs> built up around it. Uh, we'll celebrate Op- Optimus Prime, the Transformer, who did something uh, really heroic. <laughs> I will note that I did buy some items on Amazon, some of which are arriving this afternoon. Um, but they were mostly smaller items that I was planning to buy anyway. They just were discounted a little bit, so that was nice. But I also, interestingly, bought something from Best Buy because they, they kind of had their own Big Deals Day or something they called it, and um, there was a good discount. And again, something I'd been planning to buy anyway, but it was now much cheaper. So um, it both worked from Amazon and also worked a little bit for Best Buy as well. Yeah. Um, third news item uh, today is this Uber Yandex story that I mentioned earlier. So Uber has been in the Russian ride-sharing market for some time now, uh, and as in China up until last year, um, has been very much in second place behind a domestic provider and in this case the domestic provider is Yandex Taxi which is an arm of Yandex which has been described as the Google of Russia it's the big search engine there um, and so again found itself in second place kind of well behind a domestic competitor was presumably burning cash as it subsidized rides to try to be competitive and ultimately has decided to throw in the towel on its own efforts and throw in its lot with Yandex and so the two have announced that they're going to be merging their operations in Russia and a handful of other countries where Yandex operates in Eastern Europe and um, interestingly, Uber has spent $170 million so far on that Russian business, which is quite a lot of money, and it's throwing in another $225 million in cash in investment in the new entity, so for a total of about $400 million. Uh, but its stake in the new entity, assuming the regulators approve it and everything else, and that, that should happen by the end of the year, uh, its stake will be worth a little over a billion dollars. So even though this is something of a defeat for Uber and a you know, concession and a withdrawal in a direct sense from the market, 
it's a pretty darn good return on investment to put in 400 million and get 1.1 billion dollars of value back so that's just a valuation obviously it's not cash uh, and you know things could still go wrong but the point is by combining their businesses you know these two competitors that have competed very aggressively and have subsidized rides and so on will now be able to have greater scale won't have a big competitor to deal with and therefore presumably will be considerably more profitable going forwards um, so if you're a Russian ride-sharing user, you might find you're paying slightly higher prices going forwards and you have fewer options. But for Uber, it's probably actually a really good deal uh, and certainly echoes that deal in China last year with Didi, which is a very similar situation. Any thoughts from you on this one, Aaron? Yeah, a couple. One, I think it really drives home how how much political risk Uber's business model faces just generally. Um, obviously, that's heightened in countries like like Russia and China. But it's always faced a lot of political risk in terms of his business model. This is usually uh, globally a highly regulated industry, and uh, and so it's hard for Uber to compete because they can't have political influence everywhere they go. It's just a practical impossibility. And so I think that's the impetus for deals like this, um, both in China and now in Russia. Um, you know, the uh, the other thing is... It, it, part of the reason this is such a politically connected business and so politically challenging for for a disruptor like Uber is is that there's a lot of monopoly power at work. Um, you know, in New York City, for example, it was a it was a political fight there too, and it had everything to do with the fact that these taxi medallions were literally investment properties. If you wanted to, you know, if you wanted to have a taxi service, there were a limited government limited number of medallions and you'd buy one not to actually run the business, but to invest in as a as an investment property because mm. they would always increase in value over time as the population of the city increased. And Uber is obviously has obviously done a lot of damage to that and um, and to the value of these taxi medallions. This is the same concept everywhere they go. Um, because taxi services have been pretty entrenched for a long time, and and uh, and what happens is when a group has you know like mo- monopoly or quasi monopoly power um, at on the threat of losing it, the first thing they're going to do is turn to regulators, not to competition necessarily. And so, um, you know, Uber has grown remarkably rapidly and very expensively in that process. Um, this will continue to be the challenge as they want to expand globally and even in parts of the U.S. still. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, and I think we're seeing now the results of a deliberate strategy to refocus a little bit, to reevaluate some of these international markets and say, hey, you know, there are some markets where we're just not achieving the results that we want. We're spending a lot of money to get second place and we're probably better off either giving up entirely or throwing in our lot with a local competitor. And we've seen that happen in now two of the biggest markets outside of the U.S., uh, India would be the the other big market, one of Uber's biggest markets, depending on how you measure it. Uh, there, Uber's doing rather better against Ola, the large uh, domestic competitor. So I don't see them doing this there anytime soon. I think they're doing quite well there, relatively speaking, roughly neck and neck, depending on how you measure it with Ola. So it seems unlikely to happen there, but I could see similar things happening in some smaller markets. Interestingly, these markets where Google's ended up giving, I mean, Google, Uber has ended up giving up um, they're some of the same markets that have local competitors in uh, smartphones and so on as well. Um, India, again, w- would be one of those in the smartphone side, an exception on the Uber side. But basically, it's the markets where there's a large enough domestic market for a product or service that they can uh, sustain a homegrown competitor. And those then often do beat out 
the overseas competitors often from the United States in these various markets, whether it's smartphones, internet services, uh, ride sharing, as in this case, or whatever. Um, those are going to be some of the markets where it's toughest for Uber to compete. On the other hand, there are going to be many sort of second tier markets that aren't big enough by themselves to sustain a ride sharing competitor. Uh, because it just can't get the scale it needs to to be competitive. And so Uber's going to continue to do well, mopping up a lot of those secondary markets, as well as obviously being dominant back here in the U.S. as well. No, I think that's right. We saw the same thing with search and social networking. Right. The exact same yeah. scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, our last item today is this story from Mark Goman at Bloomberg, who normally specializes in Apple news, but has an, a Facebook scoop today. Uh, he's reported that Facebook is working on a standalone VR headset, in other words, a headset that doesn't require either a smartphone or a PC or a console, uh, but is just a standalone device that you can strap to your head um, for VR uh, under the Oculus brand uh, and uh, will cost roughly $200 and release next year sometime. Um, And this isn't the first company to announce something like this. Google announced something similar in May at its I.O. developer conference, it said that Lenovo and HTC were both working on uh, devices that used a sort of uh, reference design from Google uh, with chips from Qualcomm and so on. Um, so this will be the sort of second entry in this market, assuming it does launch next year. The price point's one of the most interesting aspects here, just because um, the assumption has been these standalone headsets will sell for about the same as a premium smartphone because they've got a lot of the same components and then some. Uh, like sensors and so on, so that they can accurately uh, measure head tracking and various things like that. Um, so the idea that this would come in at $200 is a huge departure from anything that we've seen before. We've seen nothing anywhere close to that that has any kind of reasonable quality. Uh, interestingly, one of the other tidbits in this Bloomberg article is that Xiaomi is going to be uh, the manufacturing partner. So it's not necessarily going to make it itself. Xiaomi has a huge roster of contract manufacturers that it works with, and so it's going to be using those Uh, to manufacture it but um, again Qualcomm will be providing the chips which is kind of a reflection of the fact that these devices are leaning very heavily on the smartphone supply chain in general a lot of the same components needed uh, to make one of these things work but you know really fascinating move from Facebook which obviously already has the Oculus Rift which is sort of high-end PC rig approach and then also as a partner to Samsung around Gear VR for smartphones so this now gets into that middle space between these two other opportunities. Aaron what's your first response to that? Well, $200 would be the most important part of this, whether or not the price point holds up at a quality that people are happy with. Um, If it's a subpar experience because the hardware simply can't, because VR is so, so processor intensive. And if it can't, I I, I don't know why they'd be dumb enough to launch a product that can't keep up like that. Um, but, uh, But it really is going to be the difference. I mean, what it does, what this does is it takes VR into the same price point as handheld gaming systems, which have been around for, you know, which are a, de- a, a market that are a couple decades old now. And those, and this could be the next handheld gaming system sort of concept. What's interesting to me too about this is that because it's a standalone VR headset and doesn't rely on a smartphone or a tablet or a PC or any other device, is that this means they're building a platform, not just a device. Right. This isn't just so they can drive hardware sales. They're clearly trying to build a platform the way that Nintendo did and uh, and Sony did with handheld gaming systems. Um, whether or not a VR headset can get bigger than handheld gaming systems have as a product category is, I think, where the bigger question is. I, I, I suspect this is going to be the sort of thing that was equivalent to... Um, 
uh, you know, to what the Game Boy kicked off in terms of like, a, a, like the, it'll be roughly that size of a market. Um, yeah, that's an interesting idea. So, but, but, but that, but that's not, that's not trivial. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it's, Facebook is as well positioned, I think, as anybody to do this well and do this right. Um, so, uh, but I think that's, that's the analogy that comes to mind that seems to make this all work in my head is this is like the next generation of Game Boy essentially. Right. Yeah. No, it's, I agree with you on the price point. I think that, that feels like easily the most interesting part of this announcement because it's just well below where I think I and other people have been expecting these standalone headsets to come in. Um, you know, there have been reports that the HTC and the Lenovo ones would be sort of $500, $600, which is about what I would expect. Um, so at $200, it's either going to provide a really subpar experience or Facebook and Oculus and Xiaomi have done some really amazing stuff in hardware to make it work and it'll be very interesting to see what trade-offs are made it's it's pretty much impossible to build a competing device for you know three times less so we'll have to see what trade-offs they've made to to enable that Uh, the worry would be that you know oculus has been this very kind of high-end brand and it's obviously in there with the samsung experience which is very much more mass market but the one that they really put their name on is the rift and that's you know one of the sort of handful of really high-end VR rigs out there today and so it really would drag the Oculus brand down if this was a subpar experience and to your point if they're planning to build a platform it'll be a platform that wants to cross over those two categories and so again if it's a hugely subpar experience that will that will limit their ability to build a really meaningful platform or will create a bunch of experiences that feel subpar on the high-end Oculus Rift as well so there's all kinds of risks in this uh, and I'm pretty skeptical about the whole $200 price point. And, and you know, Mark Gurman is usually pretty good, especially when it comes to Apple stuff. So I don't doubt that he's heard, you know, reliable information on this point. But uh, it does feel like the part that seems least realistic at this point. I'm very curious to see how and if they're able to hit that when this thing actually launches next year. As I think about it more, there there may be room for a, a below average experience. I mean, the original Game Boy was terrible. <laughs> Right. I mean, it was it was this uh, pixelated grayscale screen. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. it was rough. And yet I had one as a kid and I knew a lot of people that did because there was just something so new and novel and powerful about the novelty of having a, a, a handheld gaming system with sort of some power and flexibility compared to the, you know, junky little like like uh, I'm trying to think of what those games were like the little football, you know, games but the idea was that you could switch games and cartridges and sure the screen wasn't great but it was it was good enough to play games and have fun and some of the games are even reasonably expansive considering the constraints mm. I, I don't know i mean there was room for that there even though console games or console systems that people were playing on you know at home on their tvs were a lot better um people still bought game boys way back when when it was a brand new category and this will be a new category Right, this idea of consumer VR finally f- having a place to to work and grow, and gaming I think makes the most sense, and maybe it doesn't need to be a, 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 a an incredible, completely realistic, immersive experience. Maybe it just has to be good enough to be cool and fun. Yeah, no, it'll be very interesting. I mean, arguably the smartphone version of VR is already that kind of low end experience, whether that's cardboard, whether it's Gear VR, whether it's the current version of the Daydream View. Um, so but yeah, the question is whether this. Sorry to cut you. I mean, it's kind of a mess of a category because it's not like there's a clear there's no there's no unifying platform, mm-hmm. right? Where where you buy the device, here are all these games that are certified for the device, 
I mean, part of what Facebook's innovation here will be making a platform out of it rather than just a, a device where they hope developers might show up. Yeah, and obviously Google with Daydream is trying to do the same thing. And so you have these two sure. competing platforms and coming at, at it from different ends because Daydream is obviously mobile-centric and moving up into standalone and Facebook's kind of coming at this the other way from Oculus Rift uh, but leaning on what they've done with Samsung. So sort of different approaches here. But yeah, they're both going to be building a platform which you know will come from potentially several vendors on the Google side, one vendor on the Facebook side. Um, but yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch how this pans out. And there's no guarantees any of it is big at all, to be honest. But uh, yeah. just, we'll see. Just one other quick comment. I think there's an appeal to the simplicity of not relying on a smartphone if you're a parent. I, I think if there's this sort of standalone device, right, that you can give your kid and it has an app store and you can approve the apps that they buy, then that's all you need, right? You don't have to have a, they don't have to have them connected to a smartphone or anything else. It's just this simple: stick it on your head and do whatever you want to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there's some appeal in that, and that might be that might be the approach that helps consumer VR pick up steam where it hasn't yet. Yeah, yeah. Except perhaps from parents worried that their kids are getting even more shut off from the world, right? So <laughs> literally, like off, can't yeah. even see yeah. their eyes anymore. <laughs> right, and and much harder to kind of look over the shoulder and make sure they're not doing something they ought not to be doing. So right, yeah. So yeah, interesting. All right, well, let's wrap up the conversation there. Thanks everybody for listening. Um, this is our news roundup episode for the week. As I said, recorded Thursday afternoon. So apologies if we miss anything that ends up happening on Friday, but. Uh, we should be back with you with another episode of the News Roundup and hopefully a question of the week next week as well. So have a great weekend and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.